We'll be in Isaiah chapter 9 for the thrust of our message here this morning. When you go to the book of Isaiah, you find some of the clearest Old Testament pictures regarding the promised Messiah. Uh, We have verses in the book of Isaiah that we clearly identify with the coming of Christ, some because they are quoted in the New Testament associated, and some because it's just obvious that this must surely be speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, and certainly such is our text here today. So in the time of the year that we come to of celebrating the first advent of our Lord Jesus, we want to Today, as is my pattern over the last few years, is when we come to the Advent season, I like to take an Old Testament prophecy regarding Christ and, and preach on that, and then over the, again the next two Sundays, pre-preaching from the New Testament, one from the Gospels, one from the Epistles, likewise on messages, on text regarding Christ and His first coming, the meaning of that and the significance of it. Again, our text here in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 and following, is one that is is generally pretty familiar to most of us. But is it rightly tied to the person, to the advent, the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? And if so, what consequence is there for us in that? What is the message for us if that be the case today? Well, I think we can safely tie it to the person of Jesus Christ in His first advent, if for no other reason, if we think about the words of Jesus Christ Himself. And as we have been in the book of Luke for the last few years, but so many times it was thrust upon us by the things that Jesus would say when He would clearly identify to His disciples that the Old Testament Scriptures are speaking about Him. And in fact, He clearly says that in Luke chapter 24, verses 27 and 44. Verse 27, dealing with the two men as they were walking on the road to Emmaus, and He began to open the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, about Himself. And then in verse 44 of Luke chapter 24, He just very clearly says, these Scriptures, they speak of Me. And so it is certainly not a stretch for us to go to the Old Testament and find a passage such as we will be considering here today and make application and fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, I think it is safe to say for those who would refuse to do such a thing, they miss the Old Testament Scripture's meanings. If you don't see Christ in the Old Testament, you've missed the message of the Old Testament according to the words of Jesus Christ Himself. It's not that we go to the Old Testament and we look at every verse and every little thing we can possibly find and say, ah, here must be a reference to Christ. But we can go to those things that are very clear, those types that are given to us of the work, the person, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So begin reading with me here in Isaiah. Just for context, we'll back up to verse 1. Our text will be verses 2 through 7. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And just for clarification, the three expressions there of this the way of the sea and the other side of Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, it's speaking of those same two lands of 
of uh, Zebulun and Naphtali. Okay? So when he says that there is no more gloom for who is in anguish, and then he says that this will be glorious, he's, he's speaking of the same region here. Then verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of the oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. And what's the reason for this? Verse 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The word hope became a pretty familiar catchword of this last election, did it not? We heard the word hope a good bit. The audacity of hope. And many people have placed their hope in the results of this past election. I hope that we have not. I trust that we have not. Because let me assure you, our hope is not to be found in the White House, whoever's there. doesn't make any difference who is there. That's not where our hope is to be found. But we come to true and spiritual and eternal life issues. Where can people rightly and safely place their hope? Where do we, are we called to place our hope? Paul in the New Testament refers to Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1.1, he says, Jesus, our hope. And then he also says in Colossians 1.27, he says to the church at Colossae, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So it's very clear that the hope of the church, the hope of God's people, is in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And all of Scripture directs us to that. Now let me, I think, also clarify one thing. Often when the world speaks of hope, what the world means by hope is this wishful thinking. We hope something will happen. We have a hope, and it's kind of a, maybe it will, maybe it won't, but we hope that it will. When you turn to the Scriptures, the word hope has a much different meaning. The word hope there has the meaning of a sure confidence. So that when the Scripture says that Jesus is our hope, it's not saying that, we hope Jesus comes through, or we hope that placing our confidence in Jesus proves to be a good thing. 
But hope in the biblical sense is to rest assured of these things. We have a confidence. That notion of hope. So when we say Christ in you, the hope of glory, it is Christ in you, the confidence, the certainty of glory, of being with God in eternity. But can Jesus bear such a weight? And I think we obviously say, of course He can. And why would we say that? Because we recognize that Jesus is God's provision. That Jesus was sent not by the, by the creativity of man, not even His own initiative, but He was sent by God to come. And because He has been sent by God, it is good and it is right that we place all of our hope in Him. That Jesus is uniquely qualified for us to place hope in Him. We want to consider from our text here this morning reasons that Jesus is uniquely qualified that we can place full confidence, full hope in Him. First of all, we consider the promised coming of this child. The promised coming of this child. Now the focus of our text here, in chapter 9, verses 2-7, through the focus of our text is clearly verse 6. The first part of verse 6. When it says there, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. There's the focal point of our text. And I say that because the blessings and the benefits that are described in verses 2 through 5, which precede verse 6, they are all dependent upon this child. We even see the word there in verse 4. For, this is what, verse 5, 4, verse 6, 4, there, meaning the reason being, the basis for this. And so verses 2 through 5 all are dependent upon this child that's spoken of in verse 6. But then we see the characteristics of the person and the reign of this child in verses 6 through 6b through 7. In other words, the last part of verse 6 and verse 7 are descriptive of this child, who he is and what happens. So the focal point of our text here again is very clearly verse 6, the first part of that verse. So much hinges on who this child is and what this child does. Much hinges on it exegetically for our understanding of this text. We've got to know who this child is. But also much hinges on this child historically. For God's people looking for divine help, looking for divine assurance that all of His promises will be kept and that God can be fully trusted. A lot hangs here on this child. This prophecy here in Isaiah chapter 9, it came at a time of abounding unbelief. When there is little or nothing in the way of faith. In fact, if we turn back in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7, it helps us to get a little bit of the context here of what's going on. It came about in the days of Ahaz, 
the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah. So Ahaz is enthroned upon the Davidic throne in Jerusalem of Judah, the southern kingdom. You remember, after King David, his son Solomon became king. After Solomon was king, the kingdom was divided between the north and the south. See, they weren't the only one that had that problem, were they? We we can identify with that. And then Israel, the bad guys were the north. (laughs) No, let's be careful here. I better be careful. I couldn't preach this in Massachusetts, could I? <laughs> no, in all seriousness. What happened was, Jerusalem Jerusalem was in the southern part. And so, when you, when you read that in the Old Testament, after the kingdom was divided, the northern kingdom is often called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. Judah has Jerusalem. Judah has the Davidic line. The northern kingdom, Israel... With, with their first leader after Solomon, after Solomon's reign, this is easy to remember, the southern kingdom, Jerusalem and Judah, their king was Rehoboam. The northern kingdom, Israel, fell immediately into idolatry. Their, their ruler, their king, was Jeroboam. So you have Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south. And so the northern kingdom falls immediately into idolatry for fear that the people will be returning back to Jerusalem for the pilgrimage that they're supposed to make three or four times a year. And they walk back to Jerusalem and think, you know, we really like it here. We should be a part of this. And we wanted to reunite. So Jeroboam, to counter that, sets up idols in some cities in the northern kingdom so that the people will not return back to Israel. So King Ahaz is king in Jerusalem of the southern kingdom here in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel. Okay, so here you have Pekah, who is the king of Israel, which is the, which one? Northern kingdom. All right, the kingdom of Israel is divided. North's called Israel, south's called Judah. North is in idolatry. The south maintains some semblance of true worship because they at least have the Davidic throne there in Jerusalem. And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not conquer it. Here's what happened. These two kings, king of Aram, Rezin and Pekah, who is the king of Israel, they are beginning already to feel some of the pressure and the heat and the attacks from the Assyrian Empire, which would eventually conquer the northern kingdom. Assyria comes in and destroys. Well, they're beginning to experience that. And so these two kings unite to go to battle against Assyria to try to slow them down. So they ask Ahaz to join them. Ahaz doesn't want to do it. So in order to persuade Ahaz, or at least to get the southern kingdom to join with them, they've decided they're going to come, attack Jerusalem, remove Ahaz from the throne, and put their own man on the throne. Who will join with them and the confederacy, and go to war. That was their very simple plan, which really described here in Isaiah chapter 7. 
So with that in mind, they want to to bring Ahaz, bring the southern kingdom in with them. Ahaz is unwilling to do it. So what happens here? Let's read here a little bit more in Isaiah 7. It is reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim. In other words, these two parties are united. The Arameans, Aram, are camped in Ephraim. It means they're in cohesion, or they're, in, they're working together, Ephraim, another name for Israel, the northern kingdom. The Arameans, have camped in Aram, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim. His heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. That was Ahaz's response. He's terrified. I don't have a chance. Then the Lord said to, to Isaiah, Ah, here's something good. The Lord sent a message. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, who's shaking in his boots. You and your son, Shir Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear. And do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. That's like a threat to you. <laughs> on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, this is their plan, verse 6, let's go up against Judah and terrorize it, make, make it for ourselves a breach in its walls, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. So they want to replace Ahaz with Tabeel, who will join with them in this confederacy against the Assyrians. Thus says the Lord God, verse 7, This is the word of the Lord to King Ahaz, through Isaiah. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. It's not going to happen, Ahaz. They're not going to come in here and defeat you, and remove you from the throne. Verse 8, For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. That's what he's saying there. For the head of the country Aram is the city, the capital city, Damascus, and the head of the city of Damascus is King Rezin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And you know, in 65 years later, what happened? There was 65 years later, there was, after already the defeat of the northern kingdom, there was the transplanting of other people groups into the region so there was any sense of nationality was lost. So that Ephraim will be shattered, so they're no longer a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, all right? The head of the country Ephraim, Ephraim, another name for Israel, the northern kingdom, is the city of Samaria, capital city of Samaria, and the head of the capital of Samaria is the son of Ramalia, Pekah. If you will not believe, you surely shall not, you surely shall not last. What's he saying here? Listen. These, these countries, with their cities and their kings, are not anything to be concerned about. And, what, and I was just reading this week on some different commentaries on this text, and what one writer said, I just, and I think it's so true, what, what is just shouted here should have been heard by Ahaz 
by silence and by his absence was that he very clearly said the head of Judah, the head of the, the, true, the true people of Israel now, the head of Judah is Jerusalem and the head of Jerusalem is Ahaz, descendant of David. He doesn't say that, but he could have. The point being, these people, they've nothing. In fact, God has spoken against them. You, Ahaz, are seated upon the throne of David, and you have a promise, a covenant that God made with David that there would always be one of his descendants upon the throne. They're not going to come in here and remove you and put Tabil on the throne because I told David that won't happen. There's the issue. So the question for Ahaz is, will he believe the promises of God? Will he believe, will he believe that God's promises in His covenant with David were valid and that there would always be a descendant of David upon the throne in Jerusalem? So fearful Ahaz... He considers, rather than believing God, rather than trusting in the promises of God, Ahaz sees his best option as going for help against these two guys from guess who? You know who he turns to for help? Assyria. The nation that is coming in and beginning to conquer these other two. They're already, they're already attacking the northern kingdom. And these regions there in, in chapter 9, verse 1, of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, they've already been taken. That's why he says that here. They're lands of gloom. So Assyria's coming in. They're already taking part of the northern kingdom. And so Ahaz's conclusion is rather than trust in God, I'm going to do a full circle around these guys and I'm going to get Assyria to help me. That's his solution to the problem. So Isaiah's first divine message there in 7, 3 through 9, which we just read, he says, verse 4, have no fear. Have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. And then notice also, here's the test in verse 9, the very last part of it. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Isn't that always the test for God's people? The test of faith. Am I going to believe or am I not? Am I going to trust God or not? And believe what? Well, for him, it was trust God's promise of a Davidic line in Jerusalem as the king. So you have a second message that begins in verse 10 of chapter 7. The Lord spoke again to Ahaz. And then this, again, a verse, the text here that we're very familiar with. Ask a sign for yourself. This is God's word to Ahaz. Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Here it is, folks. Ask whatever you want to as a sign from God. And Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. It just sounds good, doesn't it? But it's not. 
God has said to him, you ask a sign for me, ask whatever, blank check, whatever you want as a sign, you ask. And unbelieving Ahaz tries to hide his unbelief under the guise of piety. I'm not going to test the Lord. It's not to test the Lord. He said, do it. So, in verse 13, then he said, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Here's the response. He's rebuked. I'm not going to put God to the test. And Isaiah's word, him as the word of the Lord is, you are testing God by your unbelief. Trying Him. And so, the sign was not asked for, and hence the sign was not given, at least not in the immediate context. And here we have a verse that we're familiar with again. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. But it isn't going to be a sign in your lifetime. It's not going to be a sign in your day. This is going to be a sign that's going to be far removed, far removed into the distant future. It's a far greater sign, Ahaz, than just that you are going to be on the throne and that your son will be. It is a distant promise. And as the prophets so often will do, they remove themselves and they see things to the future. And he says, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. There's that word again. Bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. So how do we say that this verse ties into something that is far in the distant future? Well, if for no other reason, simply because Matthew quotes it in regard to the coming of Christ. And says, this is speaking of Christ. The Scripture might be fulfilled. Spoken Isaiah the prophet. A virgin will be with child and bear a son. She will call his name Emmanuel. So you have this, this child and this son terminology presented already here in chapter 7. And what are the results of Ahaz's unbelief? Ahaz turns to Assyria for help, and they do bring some measure of help and relief, but they also prove to be the judgment of God even against Ahaz. Although Assyria did not come in and destroy the southern kingdom, great damage was done. So those whom here would turn to another Savior, another Deliverer, other than God Himself, finds that that Savior turns around to bite them. And they pay a high price for that. And this promised child then of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, is again mentioned and further identified and back in our text of 9 chapter 2, verses 7. So, how sure of a promise is this? We're talking about here the promise of this child's coming. How sure of a promise? Well, first of all, note here in Isaiah chapter 9 that the prophet speaks with the prophetic voice and he speaks as God's agent of future events. He speaks in what's called the prophetic perfect voice, which we would identify as the past tense. He is speaking of future events in past tense. Now, if you're reading from the NASB in verses 2 through 4, it doesn't read that way. The NASB translates them as future events, which is what I'm using here. If you have an ESV, it does translate them that way. 
It translates verses 2 through 4 as in the past tense. So how sure of a promise here are we speaking of? We are so sure that in the prophet, the prophet's consciousness, he places himself in the future and he records these future, records these future events as though they have already taken place. In other words, this is a done deal. How sure are the promises of God regarding this child? So sure that the prophet from the future looks back and says it's done. Placing himself in his consciousness into this future time. So we see the prophetic voice speaks to us of the, the surety of this promise. Second, we see the divine purpose here. This is what God designs to do. And notice how he says in the, vast, the last part of verse 7 of our text. Isaiah 9, verse 7. When he speaks to this child, he speaks of what will happen. The very last phrase that he says there is what? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. In other words, God's jealousy, which is a part of His true love, He describes Himself as a jealous God and is a part of truly loving His people, truly loving His purposes, and He is passionately committed to His purposes for His people. He is zealous for these things. So how sure of a promise is this that this child will come and do these things? It is as sure as the zeal and God's determination and God's passion to accomplish His purposes for His people. Do you need any more assurance than that? That what God is zealous for, He is zealous to do His will. He is zealous for His purposes. He is zealous to demonstrate His love for His people. So he says there, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. No way. No way does this fall on the list of things forgotten. Things undone. You got one of those lists? You know, honey-do's list? Neil asked him, did you do it? No. Didn't do it. (laughs) Not so with the Lord. The promises of God. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish these things. He's zealous. He is zealous to do this. It's like it's on the front burner waiting to be done. And it's certainly among the purposes of God. So how confidently we embrace Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises. That God is faithful. He is zealously committed to delivering His people. Listen, folks. If He doesn't send this child, we have no forgiveness of sins. We have no basis of a relationship with God. We have no restored relationship with God. We are still alienated from Him. We are still in our sins. But God is zealous to accomplish His purposes for His people. And that is bringing us into a restored relationship with Him. And this is accomplished exclusively. It is accomplished exclusively in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. So rightly, and in fact, it is of necessity that we place all of our hope in Him. It's good and it's right that all of our hope, all of our confidence be in Christ. That we have no confidence 
in our flesh. We have no confidence in men. But we hope and we rest fully in Christ. He is demonstrated to be God's provision and He is promised here in Isaiah. Secondly, we see the why else that Jesus is uniquely qualified for us to place all hope in Him. The second reason is the personal character of this child. The child is not only unique in the nature of this promised coming, but also in His character. And where do we see the character of this child? We see it most clearly in the names that are given to Him there, beginning in the second part of verse 6. And note here the dual nature that is suggested throughout verse 6. A child is born. Speaking of humanity, he enters into the human race. A child is born. A son is given. Given of divine initiative, of divine origin, of divine nature. Let's look at his names here. These, again, texts we're familiar with. Excuse me. Let's look at his first name that's given to us here in verse, the last part of verse 6. First of all, we see wonderful counselor. There's actually two nouns put together. What's the why? In so many translations, it's separated. Some see these two nouns and think, well, it's, he's wonderful. That's one. He's a counselor. That's two. But the pairing of these throughout this text seems to demonstrate that, in fact, these go together. These two nouns go together. And it could literally be translated, wonder counselor. Now, we come with the word wonderful. And wonderful, in our minds, a lot of times, has more of the function of an adjective. But the word here is a noun. It is something that is unusual, something that is extraordinary, Something that is it is a marvel in the sense of a miracle. And it's characteristic of God Himself spoken of here. When we hear, see this word wonder, and get often translated wonderful. So in other words, this one is a supernatural counselor. One who is given supernatural counsel. The divine nature here clearly imply that is more here than just just a man. Was it not true of the words of Jesus? When those who would hear Jesus, they would go. Some even went to, to arrest him. And as Jesus spoke, they came back empty-handed. What did they say? No one speaks like this man. It's just the wisdom that he brings, the insight that he brings. He's also described here by the same as a counselor. And the idea that is suggested by counselors is wisdom. So this child possesses a miraculous ability to apply wisdom. This wonderful counselor. Second, we see he is the mighty God. Literally to be translated, God of might. The same wording is used in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21. Just want to jot that down. But the mighty God. And it is an unequivocal statement of divine nature. Then it clarifies that word that we've seen back in Isaiah chapter 7 of this Emmanuel. What do you mean, God with us? This is what we mean. We mean that this one is God Himself come in the flesh. That's who this child is. Unequivocal statement of a divine nature. 
And that he is mighty. There is none to challenge him in strength. None to challenge him in his capability. None to thwart his purposes or his plan. He is the mighty God. This is the Son. This child. He is the mighty God. Next we see he is described as the eternal Father. Some translate the Father of eternity. It expresses the child's eternal existence. That there is, in fact, in verse 7, it says that there will be no end to the increase of His government or of His peace. One writer says this, and just making reference to the people's request for a king. You remember back before there were any kings, you had the book of Judges and the chaos that took place. Every man that did what was right in his own eyes. And so you get into the next books of 1 Samuel that the, key, the people came and they requested that they could have a king like the other nations. And one of the notions behind that was that they were looking for something that was, that was continuing to provide some sense of security with, that was more reassuring than just these judges that would rise up in the time of need and, they, and then they're gone and disappear and then, then who's in charge? So there was just something reassuring of, well, let's have a king. And, you know, he dies, his son becomes king. And he dies, his son, you know, there's always there. It's always there. We've got a leader. We know who to turn to. So this no end to the government, this eternal father, as described in the son here, speaking here of his relationship to God's people. He is the creator. He is the one who loves. He is the one who provides. He is the one who protects. Now, let's understand this. That when we turn here and we see this phrase regarding Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being described as the eternal father, we need to understand here that this is not an ignoring of the distinctions within the Trinity. We recognize the Trinity. There is the Father, there is Son, there is the Holy Spirit. And we will also say that Scripture teaches that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. They are three persons in one God. So when you see this phrase here, eternal Father being ascribed to what we would say and recognize as the one who is identified as the Trinity in the Trinity as the Son, that it's not ignoring the distinctions between the Trinity. All he's doing here is describing here something of the role that Jesus, that this child has in his ministry. In the broader context here of what we've been reading here in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8 and 9, The broader context here is that Isaiah is addressing the Davidic house through King Ahaz. King Ahaz is of the Davidic line. So they are being addressed and the responsibility of the king to demonstrate the fatherhood of God. That was one of the roles of the king. It was there to be a a picture of the fatherhood of God and their care and their ruling over the people. So when you see here that this son or this child is described as the eternal father, it's not saying that he is God the Father. That's not what he's saying. But it's speaking of the role here and the responsibility that he demonstrates in his ministry. So Ahaz, and as with the other kings, they largely failed in that responsibility, did they not? And 
And then we see that he is described as the Prince of Peace. Oftentimes when we think of Prince, we think of someone who's not quite made it yet. You know, the, the King or the Queen still living, so you got this guy waiting in line. It doesn't really do anything. You know, we got one of those in England right now, right? Been around for 50, 60 something years and his mother's still living, right? And a lot of times we think of a prince, say, well, they're just kind of waiting in line. They don't have a position. But that's not, the, that's not the biblical picture that we should get in mind here. That it's more than a mere royal descendant. But it is one who has the character of royalty and the authority to rule. He has the character of royalty, also the authority to rule. He is a ruler. He is, in effect, a king. So he is described as this prince of peace, one who has the character of royalty as well as the authority to rule. Prince of peace, and the word peace there meaning well-being. We're familiar with the word shalom, right? Which means peace. Freedom from anxiety, it's wholeness, it's completeness. So this one, he is, he's identified as the Prince of Peace. He is the ultimate expression of peace and the provider of peace. <coughs> Excuse me. And we see some of the, the peace that he brings about back in like Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5. Every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. In other words, the military attire is going to be needed. It's going to be useless. It's not needed anymore. That stuff's going to be used for kindling. Keeping you warm, burning in the fire, verse 5. And then we see again in verse 7 on the end, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. No end to this. He is the prince of peace. He is the, he is the ultimate expression of peace, but also the one who brings peace. What greater person? What greater place? For us to place all of our hope in a one who is described as this, who is a wonderful counselor, who is the mighty God, who is the eternal Father, who is the Prince of Peace. Jesus is divine. He is the God-man, uniquely qualified, divinely sent, supernatural in wisdom, almighty, eternally caring as a Father, and the one who is even described in the New Testament as our peace. He is our peace. Peace within, peace in relationships, peace with God. That's peace. The Prince of Peace. What better place to place your confidence in one such as this? And finally we see why Jesus is uniquely qualified that we place all of our hope in Him. Verse, the last, last point, the perennial consequences of this child. See, directly tied to his names in our text here. The names are right there. He should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And tied to those names, he brings eternal benefits for his people. What are those? It's described in a variety of, variety of ways. He speaks there in 9.1 of, of gloom. He says, There will be no more gloom for who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. Here's the exchange. Here's the exchange. From gloom to glory. That's what this one brings. 
This is the consequence of this one. He brings from gloom to glory. See, that picks up on, on part of the judgments that are found in the preceding chapter there. Look with me to the last part of chapter 8 in your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 8. Verse 22. They will look on the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. They'll be driven away into darkness. And then he says in verse 9 and 1, but there will be no more gloom. No more. From gloom to glory. From darkness to light. It says in verse 22 of chapter 8, be driven away into darkness. Verse Chapter 9, verse 1, he treated them with contempt. The land of Nathalie will be contempt, but later he shall make it glorious with the sea on the other side of Jordan. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness... Properly translated, have seen a great light. So it's from gloom to glory, it's from darkness to light. So what you have here in the picture, in the mindset of those who hear this, what you have here is the mindset of this is restoration. These lands that that we're seeing being conquered, they're being restored. What else is going to turn gloom to glory except that we see these lands that have been taken restored to their former glory? Which what he says he would do. Later, <clears throat> he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. It's gloomy now, but it's going to be glorious. He says in verse 3, Another of the consequences of this child, verse 3, is gladness. Verse 3 says, You shall multiply the nations, you shall increase their gladness. What type of a gladness will it be? They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. Here's one picture he gives them. This is the type of joy and gladness that your people will experience. It's the gladness that one experiences at the, the bringing of a great harvest. The great joy that, hey, we're going to live through the winter here. God has provided for us. But also in verse 3, he goes on and says, As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. What's that? That's the, that's the military conquest. Dividing the spoils of those whom you've overcome. That's the type of joy. You've gone into battle and you've won. And so now the spoils are yours to divide. It's much greater, much greater than the other side of the equation, isn't it? You lose. Here's the joy of going to the battle and to win. That's the joy that he says there is to describe the people of God as God does this great work. They were glad, they were glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. And the Egyptian, the triumphs of the Egyptian deliverance. Verse 4, you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders. Those words bring a clear image to their mind. They know what it is to have yokes and burdens and staffs on their shoulders. This is a picture right back to Egypt here. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. And then he refers to, in the last part of verse 4, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. You remember the story of Gideon when he goes against the Midianites? The great conquest there brought about by 300 men. This is how you work. Victory and triumph. And the rod of their oppressor, as at the Midian. Who was the oppressor here? Of course, the, the main oppressor was Assyria. 
Assyria who had who did eventually come and, and conquer the northern kingdom. Israel had fallen to idolatry. Israel made their attack against the southern kingdom. But by 701, Assyria was completely destroyed because God stopped them. The eternal rule and the peace on the Davidic throne, verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. There's the throne of David. This is what it's about. God's promise to David. And so as, as Neil appropriately read that psalm this morning, so much they're referencing the, uh, the Davidic throne, the Davidic line. And he says, describes it here to establish it, to establish it firmly and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. That which is right according to divine law and according to God's divine character. I don't know about you. Gloom for glory, darkness to light. Great gladness, eternal rule and peace, the reign of justice and righteousness. Anybody want to take some of these benefits? Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That's a pretty good benefit plan. It's better than most of us have at work or had at work, right? Glory, gladness, peace, righteousness. Sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? But it is only possible with God through Jesus Christ. That's who this child is. And we are called to affirm our hope in Christ, to, to rest firmly with all hope, all confidence in Christ, nothing in of ourselves. To believe the promises of God mean something. To believe the person of Jesus Christ, He's unique in His, in His person. He is not just a man. He is the God-man. And that the promises here of the consequences of this One who comes, all that He brings to us, Glory and gladness and peace and righteousness. They're ours. So we affirm our hope in Christ, but we also, we also, we also proclaim Him as the only hope of men. That's what this season is about, isn't it? We're proclaiming this Christ who has come as the only hope for men. So we're calling on others, put your hope and your confidence not in the past election. Put your hope in Christ. Because that deals with eternal issues, spiritual issues. Hope in Him. It's right and it's good and it's, it's our responsibility because of the promise regarding His coming, because of His personal character, who He is, but also because of the perennial consequences that we receive, the benefits that are ours that come to us as a people of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for this child who is more than a child. He is God. And as we have our thoughts focused throughout these days, this season upon His first coming, His advent, O oh Lord, that we would meditate deeply upon these truths Lord, and to rest assured that we do well, we do right to hope in Him, hope in Him alone. 
Thank you, Father, for those here whose hearts you have transformed that we might believe. And Father, for those who have not, we ask for your work of grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.